Hi everyone and welcome to the Poema Podcast. I'm James Prescott, your host. Um, I'm really excited today because I'm gonna, I've am gonna. i got a guest with me who I wanted to have on the podcast since I started it. Um, somebody um, I know from my own background, someone who, the person who kind of kicked me off into professional writing um, and her name is Vicky Beeching. Welcome Vicky. Hello, it's so lovely to be with you. Um, Vicky is a an author and um, a broadcaster and a equalities campaigner, and um, she's just released her first, or just about to release her first book, um, which is her memoir called Undivided, and we're going to be talking about that today. So um, Vicky has a very powerful story, and uh, we're going to talk about a bit more about that today. So yeah, welcome Vicky, and just tell us a bit about what this book is about. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. Um, it's yeah, it's a book that tells my journey uh, really across my whole life. So it starts at childhood and, and brings you right up to the present day. And it talks as honestly as I possibly could about the twists and turns of my journey with faith and with being gay and other themes as well. Things like mental health really play a prominent role too. So it's basically my story of growing up as an evangelical Christian then finding myself getting involved in worship leading and songwriting at a really young age and also realising at that same young age that I was gay and having no idea what to do about that and the stress and the trauma that that caused for me of feeling like I was really being ripped into by these two things in my life that both were very important. And, yeah, the the book just follows my journey through, um, you know, going to Oxford, studying theology wrestling with my faith and my sexuality there then off to America to sign a record deal and begin playing in mega churches in the US Mm. and then yeah finally coming to a crunch point about needing to um you know decide that I had to admit that I was gay and come out and and all that's happened since so (laughs) that's the broad sweep of the book yeah it's a yeah that's a very very short summary of a um of a very um, powerful story um yeah it's um because the, the, the weird thing is i grew up with i'm we're kind of the same generation and i, I kind of grew up with you being a worship leader in you know festivals i used to go to soul survivor and um things like that and you were leading worship there and um i remember buying your albums and things like that you know and singing the songs that you um that you wrote and um and that's how i that's how a lot of people encountered you to begin with as a worship leader um and yeah and then kind of things started to change um i remember the last album um the last album you brought out which was um i think your best album actually um Oh, thanks. <laughs> I, forget, well, I forget what it's called. I can't. I, I, called it Eternity Invades. Eternity Invades. That's right. Yes. And just after that, um, Vicky did some co- did some coaching with me um, while you were getting treatment for um, the illness that you had, um, which is talked about in the book, um, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, and that's kind of how we built a relate, built a friendship. Um, yeah. So, okay, just going back to kind of the beginning of your story. How did it make you feel growing up, knowing knowing you were gay, um, but also living in the fear of others finding out, especially people mm. in your church finding out, and and that kind of idea that comes across in the book that at that point you kind of felt there was something wrong with you, and um, you know how how did that kind of change you? Yeah, it it was really interesting to see my personality shift, and I know a lot of people do experience a bit of a different personality when they hit their teens anyway um but I had been a really kind of bubbly outgoing chatty little kid always with a smile on my face and when I reached the age of 13 and it it really began to dawn on me that I was um only attracted to girls and not boys it was such a shock and I knew what the church thought about it and this just overwhelming sense of shame filled me that I'd never experienced before because I'd always believed that God loved me and that the church was my family and all of those important things that you kind of want to feel as a Christian, you know, and suddenly there was this sort of secret that I had to keep. I didn't feel able to talk to anyone about it. Um, I couldn't talk about it at school because as you'll also remember, section 28, it's a law in the UK Mm. that actually made it illegal for teachers to 
teach same-sex relationships as a family model. Mm. So there was never anything at school, um, at high school, about same-sex relationships as a viable option. And then obviously church, I couldn't talk about it. And my family are very evangelical too. And I didn't didn't know what they would say. So yeah, like you say, it was just this sense of having this massive secret inside me and so much shame. And my personality really changed. I became withdrawn. I became um, sad and anxious. It wasn't necessarily stuff that anybody really would have noticed because obviously I was just a teen, you know, kind of locking myself away in my bedroom, mm. not wanting to hang out with my parents, which is fairly normal for any teenager, isn't it? But it, yeah, it had a real impact on me from that young age. Yeah, I mean, near the beginning of the book, you talk about, you share a story about, um, I think you were travelling to a an event, a worship event in London, and you were on the underground um, and sitting on a on a bench in an underground station and and getting up and going to near to the platform edge, um, you know, thinking of throwing yourself off. Um, it's quite a powerful story, and um, I don't think I don't think I I mean I had no idea about. You know, I mean, most of us probably wouldn't have had any idea that it got to that point. I mean, tell us a bit about about that story and about how it kind of got to that point where you where you kind of felt like there was no way out. Mm, I thought a lot about whether or not to really include that story in the book, but I felt like for the sake of shining a light on what it really can be like to be LGBT and Christian, you know, feeling this sense of shame and fear and isolation, I think I think people need to know how um, dark it really can get and um, I decided to talk about moments of um, suicidal ideation because I just wanted to yeah just just help other people that have been there to realize they're not alone and also to help the church realize that this is an urgent issue you know it's an issue of life and death Um, so yeah I talked about the fact that it just got to such a low point for me and I just couldn't see a future I think that's probably the way I would sum it up I couldn't see a way ahead for myself because I knew that I would never be able to get married, never be able to have a family of my own. And it was the isolation that really brought me to that point. It was the shame of carrying a secret, um, of feeling like I would be rejected by pretty much everyone in my world. You know, I would lose my career, my ministry, my livelihood. At the moment, at that time I was living in London, uh, in America and my work permit for the U S was actually completely tied to working in Christian music. So I would have had to go home, you know, it was, it was pretty, um, mammoth, you know, the cost that would have, um, been had to be paid if I, if I came out. So yeah, it just led me to a point where I felt so isolated, so alone. I had no one to talk to about this thing and I couldn't imagine a future for myself. All my friends were getting married, having children, starting Mm. families, you know, and I just felt so, so alone. And it really did bring me to the point of not wanting to live. Mm. And what was it that pulled you back? Um, well, in the book, I talk about just realising that actually um, taking my own life would actually make me feel even more isolated in those last seconds, you know, because I just would be around strangers. And there was just something in me, I think, deep down that thought, actually, maybe there is a way forwards that's better. Um, I couldn't imagine how I could come out because I knew I would lose everything. I would lose the entire ministry and career I've been building since the age of about 13. You know, I was writing songs from my teenage years and um, had my first publishing deal at 17. So it all started really early for me. But I think Mm. just in that moment, I thought actually maybe there is hope and maybe there is a way out uh, to be myself and have a better future. And any time my thoughts went to that really, really dark place, it was just that tiny glimmer of hope that that pulled me out and helped me to know that I could keep going. Mm. Yeah, and it's a very powerful story in the book. I'm going to recommend this book um, all the way through this interview because it's such a good book. I read this book in, and I was just saying this to Vicky earlier, I read this book in one sitting in three hours, I think, and I could not stop reading it. It's um, And that's the first time that's happened with a book with me for a long time. Um, um, it really is an amazing book. Um, so, uh, yeah, recommend Thank this you. book. <laughs> Um, and I, actually, on that on that subject, we were just talking about. I talked to our mutual friend Brandon Robertson about. Yes, I love Brandon. <laughs> um, about we were talking about increased rates of suicide and mental illness uh, amongst the LGBT community and LGBT Christians in particular. Um, oh, I mean, what do you think? 
having had this experience yourself, what do you believe we can do to to increase awareness around, I mean, around mental illness, but also about how kind of this toxic um, theology, how damaging it can be to people? Mm, yeah, it's it's such an important thing to talk about. I think often decisions are made about LGBT people in the church. Often those decisions are made by straight people locked away in rooms just having discussions, you know, like it's uh, an academic issue only. And mm. it's frustrating that often it's straight white men who make decisions about diversity within the church, especially in the Church of England. Um, mm. And I think I just want my story to be a reminder that it's about life and death and, you know, mental health and the fragility of human people. And although people in a room might be making a decision about, you know, what liturgy to change or not, or what church, uh, you know, canon laws and things need to be changed, for them often they can put that down and walk back out of the rooms to their families, to their partners, to their normal lives. Whereas people like me and so many of us in the Christian LGBTQ community, for us it is everyday existence. Um, and I think we need to raise awareness that mental health and suicide are, are genuine fallouts from church teaching mm, yeah absolutely i completely agree with you um yeah i mean i, I yeah i read brandon put a book together of people's stories um lgbt stories and um some of them were from uh, the, the thing that shocked me was that this is just as prevalent in the uk as it is in america that yeah it's know, a global issue definitely and even more so i think when you go to parts of the globe where we don't hear the stories told um i get emails coming through my website from people in, in really difficult situations, you know, countries where it's actually illegal to be gay, um, you know, even where the death penalty exists. And it's just heartbreaking, I think, to realise what's on what's on the line based on church theology. Uh, I just really, really hope it's a wake-up call um, to pastors everywhere in any denomination and any country that the, your teaching on theology is not just, you know, an academic thing. It's, it's, it's really got to think about this pastorally and realise that it can be a life and death death issue for um yeah people around the world mm, absolutely absolutely um now i mean the one thing that's interesting for me is knowing your music um and kind of growing up with it and listening to it and loving it um when when, when i when i when you came out and then um since you've come out and and reading this book as well i i found myself listening to your music more um and it's kind of meant a lot more um because in in the context of your story and i mean you you actually talk about the composition of a couple of your songs in the book as well and where that came from and i guess for me it's kind of it's it's helped me connect with you and help me connect with god more knowing the story behind it um and what i really wanted to ask was you know, as a creative person, um, how did the songwriting kind of become an outlet for expressing what was going on inside of you? And and how helpful was it in kind of facing those challenges that you were facing? I think um, when I began writing music, it, it felt like my natural way of expressing everything that was going on. I, As I got into my teens and was dealing with all those, you know, difficult feelings of, of being different and um, trying to figure out who I was and who I was attracted to and all that kind of stuff, music just became a really fundamental outlet for me. So I would come home at the end of school, go to my room, grab my guitar and just start playing. And the one thing I did feel safe writing about was my faith because I knew that was um, kind of a good, wholesome topic, you know, to write about. And also my mum is also a worship leader and a songwriter and she was always playing her songs at church on Sundays. So it just kind of felt natural that I would start writing Christian music Mm. um so yeah music just became this outlet for me I remember one time I did end up writing a song about a girl and I talk about that in the book and Mm. just just the deep feeling of shame that I'd used this what I saw as a songwriting gift given to me by God for something that I was taught to believe was sinful and shameful and dirty and I just remember promising God that I would never ever write you know, love songs about girls ever again. And I just went back into writing Christian music. So, yeah, but all the, all the songs I wrote in terms of my worship music were, were incredibly heartfelt and they were really important. Um, important prayers, I think, um, 
asking God for help, asking him to uh, be real in my life, telling him how much I loved him. And they were, and I mean them all as much as I ever did. So, um, yeah, but I think if I had allowed myself to feel free to write about just general life stuff, probably a lot more of it would have actually been about the tumult, you know, going on inside me or mm. writing songs that were more kind of about different girls that I was falling for. And it did feel like my songwriting became quite two-dimensional in some ways. It was only about one theme, but all the songs about faith I meant and loved writing and I'm really glad that I did write them. Mm. And how much was writing the book kind of a therapeutic healing kind of process for you? It was well, it was partly therapeutic and partly just really hard, <laughs> to be totally honest. <laughs> yeah, I can um, imagine. <laughs> I had to enlist the help of a therapist while I was writing it because it was just so difficult. And going back to those memories, I really wanted to revisit those memories so that I could write about them in a really vivid way. I wanted to be able to paint a picture of what it was like in those moments. And so I had to really, you know, go back into those places in my head and remember how I felt. And it was actually really, really difficult. Um, and I know we'll talk later about my physical chronic illnesses, but mm. my doctors have said they, they do think there is a lot of interlink between revisiting stress and trauma and dealing with fatigue and all that kind of stuff. So it just felt like it was all wound up together. Um, I think there is an element of catharsis when I finally got the book in my hand, um, whenever it was, maybe like six weeks ago or so, I, I held the book and there was just such a relief, like I somehow closed some door, you know, like I told the story and I could hold the book in my hands. And I think that's when I felt the sort of therapeutic moment of catharsis and I just kind of exhaled this big sigh, <laughs> yeah. um, thinking, goodness, that was a really, really tough process. But it took me, took me a couple of years to write it because I was making such slow progress because of therapy and my health issues. But yeah, I felt like I'd finally crossed the finish line and I just held it in my hand and went, I did it somehow, somehow I did it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is something so cathartic about writing something. I, yeah, the book that the next book that I want to write is is going to be a memoir, but I'm kind of procrastinating about beginning it be, purely because of the reasons that you've just talked about. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, it's not something of, to take on lightly, I think it's... No, yeah. absolutely. It's important work, I think, to, for anyone to write their story, but to go into it with the right amount of support and probably yeah. a bit of professional support. Um, yeah, I, I was surprised. It was sort of really, really hard at the time, but then cathartic and therapeutic afterwards. Mm. <laughs> so you get the benefit once it's finished, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, actually, yeah, I will ask about the um, the diagnosis now because it kind of fits with what we've just been talking about. Um so you got diagnosed with um, ME and fibromyalgia, I can't pronounce it. Oh, fibromyalgia, yeah. That's the one. Um, yeah. <laughs> you um, call it fibro for sure, that's easy. Fibro, yeah. <laughs> you got diagnosed with those um, more recently. And um, and obviously that, that, that limits the time you can spend working, you know, um, because you only have a certain amount of energy. I think it was, there was this analogy about the spoon. Whereas most yeah. people have 20 spoonfuls of energy, where um, people with the conditions that you have only have five, you know, um, a day or something. And if, if yeah, you spend, yeah. um, um, So obviously writing any, I mean, writing any book is difficult, but writing this book in particular would have been, would have taken a lot of not just physical energy, but emotional energy as well. Um, and of course, with that, you're balancing all the other work you're doing is, um, you know, the speaking and the advocacy and all of that kind of thing. Um, so how did you manage to kind of find a balance and find a rhythm of of writing um, which was healthy for you? Mm, it was really hard. I, Yeah, the diagnosis came um, after I came out, which was interesting. So it was, there's basically two different problems with my health that I had. There's, there's one diagnosis of an autoimmune disease called scleroderma, and that happened when I was in my late 20s living in the closet and it was kind of, that was the first health failure that I experienced. And I ended up in, um, in a hospital in San Diego and being told that I needed chemo for this um, autoimmune disease. And that was the end of my music kind of touring. Like we put it on pause and I had to move back to the UK and get drug treatment and all that kind of stuff. So the first kind of health crisis I had was that. Um, and that was the, what preempted me to know that I had to come out. You know, I'd just been in the closet for so long my health just fell apart with this scleroderma diagnosis. I started the chemo drugs 
and thought, you know, this has nearly cost me my life. I have to come out. So it was almost like this one kind of milestone with my health, with my body saying, hey, something's not right. Um, and then after I came out um, in 2014, I thought I was going to have, you know, perfect health and drive off into the sunset for this perfect life, you know, as an out gay person. Um, and actually, it just turned out that I'd done so much damage over the years to my, especially my kind of adrenal system. Um, you probably heard of like fight or flight when your body's mm. just ready for action. That's sort of the state that my body had had to live in for so many years um, that it's, um, the doctors say they think that's what triggered the scleroderma. But likewise, after my coming out, which was just much bigger than I ever imagined in terms of media and coverage and vitriol from right-wing Christians, um, mm. that again took a toll on me. And I ended up getting diagnosed with, with ME, um, which is sometimes known as chronic fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And they're both um, quite mysterious illnesses, again, that doctors often link to stress and trauma. So like you say, you know, I feel like I've got, the average person's got about 20 spoonfuls of energy for the day at the beginning of the day, whereas a lot of people with these chronic conditions only have, I don't know, five or 10 spoonfuls. So it just means doing life very, very differently and having to cut back on a lot of uh, mostly fun stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just trying to learn to get used to living with this, with these limitations um, and how to, you know, care for my health and not overstretch myself. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it must be it must be very very challenging. I spent and writing a book, uh, the nature of the book you were writing with, with that with those challenges as well must have been um, quite challenging. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was so sad from a work point of view because I used to do a huge amount of broadcasting. I would be over at the BBC or Sky doing newspaper reviews or commentary on things um, multiple times a week, and as soon as these chronic conditions hit me. Mm. I just couldn't manage it all anymore so I still do some but I really do miss the amount that I used to do because that's one of my favorite types of work I love journalism and broadcasting mm. so yeah it's just been hard I think um and I think it's really honest as well to talk about life on the other side of coming out that although it does get better as the saying goes and life is always better I think when you come out of the closet mm. there is an element of picking up the pieces of your life and that does bring with it an element of grief you know and sometimes dealing with health issues or dealing with the fallout, you know, of what life in the closet mm. has cost your mind and body. And with this book, I want to be honest about that. That, um, And I think that places like the church have to take responsibility for the fact that a lot of us are kind of the walking wounded. You know, we're limping mm. along trying to recover from years and years of being forced to live in the closet because of church teachings. And it's, you know, it has certainly had a really massively dramatic effect on my life getting used to these chronic illnesses which doctors say my journey has caused mm, yeah it's sad it's sad really i mean yeah it's tragic um i mean now now knowing the story i mean you talk about when when you started working in america um just to kind of somebody giving you sleeping tablets um or i think is that what it was sleeping tablets yeah, yeah sleeping tablets um and you were just on the go all the time and and of course one of the reasons you probably threw yourself into that so much was because you were trying to get away from like having to deal with this secret you were carrying this you know you were just trying to push on and you yeah, know not exactly. have, and not have to deal with it and um and we can only do that for so long you know before there's consequences so ultimately all of this stuff that's happened the um, you know the the health issues that you've had the challenges that you've had have been through keeping that secret for so long and not yeah it certainly feels like it all boils down to that and it's um I think that's why I've needed some therapy to try and help me come to terms with that because it's quite a lot to grieve you know in terms of mm. not only losing a normal teenage life you know where you get to talk to your friends at school about you know who you might fancy or going on dates or mm. first kisses or you know throughout things like university talking about people that you might be getting serious about and then it's your 20s people getting engaged you know I missed out on all of that as have so many of us that have had to live in the closet and there is a sense of grieving I think when you come out looking back going I wish I'd done this sooner you know I wish I'd been able to have all of those memories like most of my peers have mm. had um there is a lot of grief and I think that's an interesting part of the coming out process that we 
maybe don't talk about enough and I think it's important yeah there is a there is a kind of grieving process definitely when I mean when you when you when you make big decisions about your life um and you start to be true to your story there is a kind of grieving you have to leave a, a grieving of what was before you know and 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 that some that things are going to be different and um that they're never that they're not going to be this it's not it's just not going to be the same as it was you know um yeah and i think almost the the life you lived before it's not necessarily that you wanted to I don't know, I've heard a lot of other people say this, that when you, especially as a person of faith working in the church, um, I enjoyed my former life in many ways. I loved leading worship and it wasn't like I just didn't like any of that life. It was just that I had to be honest about being gay. So it's it's been quite tough to grieve the loss of an entire career. Mm. And it is quite challenging at, at 35, you know, when I came out to realise that I needed a whole new job. <laughs> That's quite a lot to take on board yeah. when you've been building a, a kind of career since your teens, you know, in music and getting signed to EMI was so exciting. And, um, yeah, just all the touring and recording. I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was just my livelihood. It was my whole life. So um, I think there are sort of practical things as well about coming out that people often don't think about. Um, you know, that, that at least for me, I never led worship again since I came out. I've never played and sung in public. I um, actually found things really hard financially uh, because I'd obviously lost that job. Um, so I ended up having to put my guitars on eBay and mm. sell them. Um, and I think people often just have no idea of the practical realities of what it can be like if you're coming out in a setting like, you know, the evangelical church. Yeah, I, I yeah, absolutely. I think it, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I you know, I'm, I'm an ally, but I'm not, you know, I'm not LGBT, and so I, I couldn't, I know that I have no idea what that challenge can be like, um, and, and I think a lot of people, white men, I suppose, but, you know, evangelicals, people who are not facing that, facing that um, challenge, I have no idea that of the, of, of the struggle that that can be, and, mm. um, still and, amazing to be an ally, I mean, I think, you know, it's been great to see you take that step. And you know, I'm thinking about someone like Steve Chalk as well in the UK. Back in 2014, he made a very bold stand, and he is a, mm. one of the most well-known pastors in the UK. And that was at great cost to him. I mean, he's not um, gay himself. He's just an ally, and he just decided he was going to stand up and speak out for people like me. And that cost him a great deal. I know he was kind of ejected from the Evangelical Alliance and... I know a lot of places that he would have normally spoken would have closed their doors to him. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think even being an ally is a really crucial thing and people like you really make a difference by doing that. You know, it's, it's still it's still a bold step. Yeah, I guess so. It doesn't, I mean, to be honest, it doesn't feel like such a bold step as, as somebody who, I mean, to be honest, I'll, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say this. Um, I remember when I saw you, well, I saw the article um, the coming out article in the independent and I saw it and I saw it break on Twitter that and I'll never forget that. And I read that and, um, yeah, I mean, you're just, <laughs> it's going to sound embarrassing for you, but I mean, you're, you're one of my heroes, you know, you're probably one of the most courageous people that I've ever known. honestly to, to come out in that way and knowing what was going to come after that and the conse potential consequences of, of coming out like that was, was hugely courageous and um yeah i think a lot of people would say the same thing that it's yeah it's just it's one of the most courageous things that anyone has ever done i think for me um well, so. it really means a lot yeah it really means a lot it was it was terrifying mainly because there wasn't anybody else i could look to for a role model you know there was a couple of people in america who'd done it but mm. there just wasn't anybody in the uk who was you know a kind of evangelical leader at that point who had come out and I just I don't know I was just looking around for anyone to kind of copy or follow or say how should I do this and I just had no idea um it's been amazing to get lots and lots of letters from people saying that since I took that step they found the courage to do so as well and um mm. yeah I talk about that in the book it's actually one of the most rewarding moments of the whole thing you know hearing these stories where people just said they read the interview in the newspaper in the UK or you know around the world online and said actually this is my story too um one of the ones that just 
amazed me the most was this young girl who wrote a little mm. post-it note to her parents mm. and left a copy of my interview with the post-it note on their pillow on a parent's pillow and it just said mum and dad I didn't know how to tell you but this is my story too and I think feeling like somehow it's given other people a voice to tell their story as people who are gay and Christian and had no idea how to broach the topic with their pastors or parents or churches I mean that yeah that just makes all of it worthwhile mm. I mean I have a few LGBT friends um, Christian friends and um, all of them, all of them, to to a T, tell me that um, you're one of their biggest inspirations, and that you coming out gave them a lot of encouragement, and um, yeah, reminded them that they're not alone, you know, because, um, and that's a really, really good thing, you know. And I, yeah, I remember that story. There, I think there was a, was there a story of somebody who was going to commit suicide and then didn't because they read your story. Yeah, yeah, just those kind of things just blow just, my mind. It's just wonderful to know that you could sort of be part of someone's life at that crucial moment. I mean, having been suicidal myself, you know, I, I can resonate with that. And just the thought that you could give someone hope at that dark, dark moment. Mm. I mean, it, yeah, it just, it makes all the stuff I've been through totally worth it. Mm. Absolutely. Um, just a, there's another topic that came up in the book for me, which kind of um, resonated with, with me, um, you know, as somebody who's not not married as yet, um, and that's about purity culture. Um, yes, okay. that seemed to be a theme that kind of goes through a lot of the book, um, because I've talked with a lot of people about how how damaging purity culture has actually been, um, and how it can be damaged. I mean, like I, I did, I saw some research that that purity culture has actually damaged has actually done such psychological damage to men that they that when they get married, they find it they find it very difficult to you know perform sexually um because of that block they've had their whole life um so i mean and you talk about in the book about how when you when you did start dating after you came out that you you struggled with that kind of any kind of physical um affection or anything like that yeah yeah because of because of that stuff that had been in your head for so long i mean what um i mean in terms of a question what what are your thoughts on purity culture now and and what would you say is a healthy expression of of sexuality for people of faith yeah it was it's kind of a it's a big topic for people like us that have grown up in the evangelical church but i think for people listening from more of a mainstream non-church life um even some of this may just sound really mm. extreme and strange but um yeah by purity culture we mean the church's teachings on um, yeah, yeah, not sure. having sex before marriage. And that is a really fundamental line in the sand with an evangelical teaching, uh, both in the UK and the US and around the world, you know, that this concept that you wait till marriage to have sex. Um, and mm. so there's a lot of teaching, as you and I both know, in church youth groups <laughs> and church conferences, mm. lots of stuff saying, you know, masturbation is totally wrong and sinful, shouldn't be doing that. Any kind of sexual feelings at all are basically to be squashed and um, ignored. Mm. And then when you do start dating, there's lots and lots of stuff at Christian youth groups about being very, very careful, you know, what you do and even practical stuff. I'm sure you've heard it too, you know, mm. about mm. where you can put your hands and where you can't put your hands yeah, on something absolutely. else and yeah, not yeah. kind of getting involved in yeah. heavy, passionate kissing. And like, you know, mm. I mean, it's very controlling. And I think the church's motives at heart have been good over the decades, you know, in wanting to... Mm present sex as something sacred but yeah I talk in the book um as other people have in other books about the damaging nature of that purity culture because it teaches you your whole life as a teen and as a young adult to see those feelings as something to fight against something to squash down and it's almost like this battleground like I've read several books as a teenager about um sex as a battleground you know that it's you and god versus sex and sexual feelings that you have to kind of wage war against them mm. while you're young until you get married but then um as many of our friends have told us you know and I write about in the book too you can get to the point of being married and not being able to switch off all of those learned behaviors and then sex is yeah. incredibly difficult for a lot of people so I think the book raises very honest questions about purity culture I don't really give any answers in the book and I don't really have any answers about what I think needs to happen in this whole thing but I think the way the church handles sex needs to be 
really thought through because lots of us, um, lots of us have sort of been damaged mm. as a result of seeing sex as something um, shameful. Yeah, and it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've done a lot of work with with people, um, people I trust, talking about this and working this through for like a couple of years. You know, because I had to kind of get out of that mindset myself because it was a real challenge for me as someone who is going into their forties and isn't married. You know, um, and just yeah, and just the psychological damage that gets done. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think I read there was this. I mean, there was this purity ring thing in uh, in America where people in the nineties, especially where people put rings on on their wedding finger to promising to save themselves to a marriage. Um, and I saw some research that said that most people who did that ended up having sex anyway. Interesting. Um, they ended up kind of the, the, a large proportion of people who took the promise never actually followed through on it. Um, um, and actually ended up being counterproductive because prohibition can kind of create a desire, you know, to do something. Um, yeah, and all the shame that must then have followed, you know, yeah, the people that kind of made a vow of celibacy till they're married and, married and then, you know, the shame of feeling like um, they'd messed up, you know, and there's a couple of Christians that have written really well on this. Um, Sarah mm. Bessie. Yes. And also Diane Anderson. They've both written about um, being labelled as damaged goods Yes. Yeah. That's the kind of um, language that was used around them, like in youth groups, you know, where they would say, oh, if people have sex before marriage, you become damaged goods and no one will want you. And I think it was the youth groups trying to scare them not to have sex before marriage. But um, I remember Sarah Bessie writes on her blog that she already had had sex and that she just felt so shamed by that message. It's a really powerful blog post and I mm. actually um, reference it in my book because I thought it was such a powerful yeah. telling um on her blog um and then diane anderson's got a whole book called damaged goods about uh, purity culture and just how it made her feel but you're right it takes it takes so long to recover from doesn't it yeah and i just absolutely. wonder whether some of us will ever recover or will, whether it will always yeah. be a difficult issue for us because you've got to actually we basically you've got to re to unlearn that you've got to rewire your brain it's like retraining your brain to see sex as a good thing as a positive thing as an expression of love and intimacy and and something to be enjoyed and that it's not because you can't because purity culture kind of goes like well sex is wrong and evil and bad and then when you get married oh it's fine then suddenly it's, suddenly it's <laughs> suddenly it's good and nice and let's do it you know like and you can't just make that switch from somebody something being bad and wrong in your mind to be, suddenly being okay you know yeah. there, there has to be some kind of residual kind of brain i don't want to say brain damage but neurological kind of blocks that you've built up and they can't just suddenly be torn down overnight you know um yeah the neural pathways do forge don't they and i think your body begins to link things a bit like um pavlov's dogs you know the experiment in the lab you know where um dogs are taught to kind of salivate when a bell rings it's like if you can actually train yourself to think and feel in certain ways if you believe things so if we're taught you know sex before marriage is wrong those feelings are to be shunned it, like you say, you get married, suddenly you've had your wedding and it's your wedding night. It's it's almost impossible to just flip a switch and change mm. all of those neural pathways and the programming that's been going on into your mind and body your whole mm. life so far. It's it's not surprising that um, a lot of couples say they struggle. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, just going back to kind of the response to your coming out, um, because you talk in the book about some of the hate you've received via email and social media since you came out. And I remember you, in, actually this week, you, you, or was it, I don't know, I think it was this week, you shared a couple of tweets about people still tweeting you and telling you what they think of you and saying really cruel, hurtful things to you about, you know, your sexuality and, and coming out and, and things like that. I mean, and I think this is kind of a daily, it seems like it's a daily thing. Yeah, no, it still is, four years on, still a daily thing. And uh, the messages of, I don't know, there was a huge wave of vitriol when I came out. Um, lots of churches just saying how utterly disgusted they were and um, disappointed in me, that my music would definitely no longer be welcome, that they, you know, they'd all been singing my songs weekly on Sundays for years and that they were never going to use them again because the songs were polluted. Um, I had, um, you know, people saying horrendous things like we believe that god actually would 
would rather have you dead because now you're actually leading a generation of young people astray. You know, all the people mm-hmm. that listen to your music are going to probably believe you about being gay and Christian, that it's okay, and that, you know, it would be better if someone took you out. We wish you were dead. We hope, you know, God takes you out um, and, you know, that you aren't here anymore. I mean, just horrible things. People saying that they were praying that God would strike me down with a disability or a chronic illness, which obviously was quite hard to process as about a year later I did get both of those chronic illness diagnoses. Mm. But the, the hatred still comes in. Um, and I'm quite accessible online with Facebook and Instagram and I've got a PA box and an open website with a contact page because I want people to be able to get me if they need help, you know, especially mm. with young LGBT people needing support. But yeah, most days I'm wading through that kind of stuff and it takes a toll. You know, it really takes a toll. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, I mean, how do you manage to deal with, I mean, how do you manage to deal with that? You know, I mean, how do you... You must some they must you must have kind of built up some kind of mechanism to some kind of process for dealing with that. I suppose therapy quite helps with that, but I mean, is there any kind of thing that you do to try and I don't know, not numb the pain, but try to filter it out, try to just not let it affect you, or is that very difficult? Um, I think yeah, therapy has been absolutely crucial, and I I began to um talk more openly to my doctor as well about just feeling really anxious in the face of all of that um all those threats and all of that hatred um and yeah in the end I got diagnosed with depression and anxiety after I came out which again wasn't the way around I imagined it you know I like I said earlier I kind of thought that coming out was going to be this I don't know walking through this big rainbow colored door and out into this perfect happy future but again like you know picking up the pieces of all that had gone on and, and dealing with the ongoing vitriol from very traditional Christians, it, you know, it just reduced me to needing antidepressants. Um, so I've been on them now for a couple of years and have found that they really helped. Um, I think the church sometimes struggles with things like antidepressants because mm. especially a lot of the really kind of charismatic churches are very keen to pray for people that are struggling um, with mental health issues, but I don't, I don't see enough coming out of the church saying actually we really value mental health professionals and we value antidepressants and it's okay, you know, if you're a leader in a church and you're on antidepressants. Like I don't really, I don't really know many people taking that kind of a stand, and mm. I think that's something that needs to be talked about too. Because remember when I first got my first packet of them, I felt a bit ashamed myself. Like oh, well, mm. um, you know, maybe I am failing at life, you know, and that's just such a such a wrong approach you know if, if we had a broken arm we would get a, a plaster cast and get our arm fixed and for me I think my journey had just left me really um damaged in terms of depression and anxiety and I need those antidepressants to just kind of keep me um on an even keel so mm. mental health has actually become a really big part of what I do now with my speaking and writing and I just want to draw awareness to the fact that if you're struggling with mental health issues it's completely fine you know most mm. people do <laughs> Um, yeah. and we just break the taboo and, and get comfortable talking about it absolutely agree I do a lot of the writing I do now is around mental health issues because I've you know I have anxiety and I've had depressive moods and um, and I'm a highly sensitive person as well which is actually a mental health issue people don't, people don't most people don't actually realize that but it is um, yeah. you know 20% of people are highly sensitive um, so I do a lot of stuff around this now as well and I you know I ironically i was actually talking i had this post on facebook yesterday which kind of went viral a little bit just because i was so upset about um some evangelical pastor conservative evangelical pastor saying exactly the things that you're talking about you know how you know it's the reason people get take become depressed and 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 commit suicide is because they're not connected to god you know and (laughs) yeah i know i was i was so upset um when i read that i just had to post something and i wrote a blog post for huffington post which hopefully will go live soon about it as well because i was just that's just so damaging you know it's just part of the problem and it's really shaming isn't it because if you're a christian and someone says that it makes you think oh it's my fault you know i'm not connected enough to god i'm failing as a christian i need to pray harder or try harder and that's the last message anybody with any kind of mental health struggles needs to hear isn't it it's, absolutely. it's going to make everybody feel worse absolutely yeah and i'm you know i consider myself to be a relatively mature christian and i've been a christian my whole life and 
I have a close relationship with God, and I have anxiety, and I have depressive moods, and I have I'm highly sensitive, and you know I've contemplate I haven't didn't plan to commit suicide, but I definitely thought about how I would do it, you know, and um, so it's just, I mean it's just so ill-informed and ignorant and damaging for people to say that kind of thing, especially people with a huge platform, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so. And that's why what you do is so important because you have a big platform, but you're using it for good and to provide support and encouragement and solidarity for people. Um, I think that's really, really important. And that's Thanks. why this. Yeah, I think I think it really is a crucial thing for the church to to not be silent about. I think a lot of churches probably aren't holding those dramatic views like that. You know, pastor that you quoted about saying, "Oh, it's a lack of faith or a lack of connection with God." But I think unless churches are vocally saying, "Actually, we are." really affirming of you talking about mental health in our church community people just don't know and people often believe the loudest voice don't they so people mm. read pieces like that you know major pastor guy in america saying those things and they kind of assume that that's must be true for them so i just think churches need to be very vocal um even speaking about it on sundays you know just dedicating mm. time to mental health mental health awareness and saying um yeah. it's okay you know it's okay to struggle it's okay to need medication and it has no bearing whatsoever on how good a Christian you are. It's just not related. It's like if you had a broken arm or a broken leg, no one would say, you have a lack of faith or you're disconnected from God. They would say, oh, mm. I'm really sorry that you've broken your arm and your leg. Let, let me help you. Mm. And that's exactly the same way the church should respond to things mm. like depression and anxiety. Yeah, and it's ironic because I, when well, reading the Bible again and you look at Jesus the night before he was killed, just before he gets arrested, he's really not doing well you know he's sweating blood he's really anxious he's really down he's not in a not in a good state you know jesus has been through that as well you know and i'm not saying he had depression or anything like that i'm just but certainly that was a traumatic experience for him um you know emotionally and mentally that that evening yeah yeah um, yeah it's a great uh, comparison and i suppose the whole point of jesus coming to earth was that he would go through what we go through as humans so it's perfectly acceptable to imagine that he did experience mental health issues um and like you say that scene from the gospels where he's just um really struggling before he um before his death it's you know that that gives us all comfort i think doesn't it that god mm. understands because in jesus he's actually experienced the same stuff absolutely absolutely yeah um so what, so what are your biggest hopes for this book? Um, what, what, what is it that you want um, to do with this book? And what do you, what would you hope that you could achieve through this book? Yeah, I had to keep remembering these reasons while I was writing it, when it was really, really tough. And when I was, you know, revisiting the hard memories and seeing my therapist and just feeling like it was all very painful. Um, the main thing that I kept in front of me as a goal was to try and write the book that I needed when I was younger and to try and write a book that if I'd read it back then when I was 13 or 18 or even, you know, 20, 22, it could have changed the trajectory of my life by telling me that it was completely okay to be gay and Christian and that there was nothing to be ashamed of. Mm. So I just hope that it's a book that, um, you know, LGBTQ people can read and feel less alone I've been really honest about stuff in the book you know about you know teenage experiences of what it feels like to be gay you know um I talked about things that were a bit embarrassing for me because I just thought you know I want I want people to feel like they're not the only ones that have gone through this stuff and then um I think my other hope for the book is that people who are in positions of authority whether it's parents or teachers um bosses of you know, people at work or maybe pastors and priests, that they would get an insight into what some LGBTQ people go through. Because I think hopefully knowing that kind of narrative about my story would help them go, okay, maybe other people are going through these, you know, really difficult things too. And hopefully it will equip them to know how to help and to imagine what people might be going through. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Just one more, there's one more thing I think which would be really important is, I mean, say there's some LGBT people, Christians listening to this, uh, maybe people who are, you know, feeling alone, feeling um, unloved, feeling that um, God doesn't love them, feeling that their church is going to reject them if they come out. 
Um, what would you want to say to them? What what one thing would you want to say to them to kind of to give them hope and, and to and to encourage them? I think I would say that my heart breaks for them because I've been there and I know how trapped you can feel and you know the shame and the fear and the anxiety but I would also say that I have absolutely no regrets about coming out and even though it has been difficult everything is so much better on the other side I I finally feel able to be authentic and I want that for every single one of those people that they could finally just exhale and let out all the stress and be them without having to be frightened or shameful anymore and to experience what it's like, you know, to, to date and be in relationships and to love and be loved in the way that God designed people like us to love and be loved. It's just a, it's a wonderful freedom. So, um, yeah, I think my journey has been unusually hard because, um, I took the step, you know, four years ago when very few people in the evangelical world had come out I think things have changed even in the past four years. It really has become much more of a talked about topic. Um, There's a lot of support, especially on social media and um, through therapy. So I guess I would just want to assure people that um, if they take that step, they're not alone. They can get in touch with me through my website and I can link them up with lots of different Christian LGBT support networks. And they can find um, a family and they can find friends. Um, I think my only caution is just to to, to think about coming out, make sure that you're ready, make sure that you have got a support network in place first and that you are safe um, and that you've got mental health support and um, all the other kinds of support that you might need if you're in a situation where you might not be accepted for who you really are. But, um, yeah, overall, I would just say, please take the step, be who God made you to be, and it really does get better. Thanks, Vicky. Um and people can connect with you online, um, Twitter, you're at Vicky Beeching, aren't you, as well? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, VickyBeeching.com is my website. And then, yeah, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, they're my my main social media addictions. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Vicky is very accessible there, by the way, I can tell you. Um, and you can buy the book on the website as well. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, it's By the time this, this podcast is released, it will be out. So um, I, I can't recommend this book anymore it's it's just a must read book um very important book and um thank you for writing it vicky thank you for um thank you for being you thank you for having the courage to to to, to be your authentic self i think that's an inspiration to a lot of people thanks james that means a lot um so yeah so thanks for listening everybody and um yeah go out and get that book <laughs>